That money's still got to come out of Congress, so there's room to agree on spending $7 billion on innovation far and wide, including nuclear energy, including CCS, but also including a lot of renewables and battery storage. Uh, so very significant outlays still yet to come. Welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week, Sarah Ladislaw and Kevin Book look at the U.S. climate and energy agenda as we move into 2021 with a new administration and a new Congress. Kevin's a regular guest on the show, and we invited him back this time to help us make sense of the recent election outcomes, the divided nature of U.S. politics, the recent riots at the U.S. Capitol, and how all of this may impact the energy and climate agenda for the United States. Sarah and Kevin also reflect on the unique makeup of the officials across the new Biden administration and how having a team with such a deep focus on climate can move the U.S. forward with its agenda, both at home and internationally. Here's Sarah to get the conversation started. Hi, and welcome to Energy 360. Very pleased to have all of you here today uh, for a discussion with Kevin Book of Clearview Energy Partners and Senior Associate uh, at CSIS. Hi, Kevin. Uh, Nice to see you, I guess, for the first time in the new year. So happy new year. Hi, Sarah. Happy new year to you. Last time we had you on the podcast was in the beginning part of November of last year, and we were dissecting the outcome of the presidential election in a conversation with our colleagues, Kyle Danish and John Larson. And I went back in preparation for this to listen to that discussion, and it seems uh, like a million years ago, given everything that's happened between that podcast and today for you know those people who similarly feel like the election was a long time ago you know we have in energy and climate world and US politics uh and US society at large experienced a lot of different uh things between then uh and now on the more mundane side which is hard to say uh you know there's there was passage of an energy bill um as part of the omnibus legislation uh towards the end of last year we had another round of um, stabilization stimulus uh, that also uh, passed at, at an 11th hour. Um, we had a very improbable outcome to the Georgia Senate elections, which has now uh, split the Senate 50-50 and effectively given control of Congress to Democrats. Then on the sort of additionally improbable uh, sets of activity, there's been an insurrection to disrupt Uh, the peaceful transfer of power in the United States and the historic second impeachment of a sitting president. And uh, additionally, uh, we're not out of the woods on COVID-19. We saw the second spike in both infections and cases that we had talked about in November as being the potential atmosphere that we would be in for the start of a Biden administration, breaking records both in terms of numbers of infections and deaths. And we've had a kind of wobbly rollout to a record-breaking vaccine uh, being distributed around the country. So that's the atmosphere in which we want to talk about what all of this change means for uh, the incoming Biden administration. It's a lot to digest, and we want to break it down into chunks and talk with you, Kevin, about how all of these factors are shaping your thinking about Uh, how we'll start off with a new administration and what's possible in the worlds of energy and climate. It's uh, it's, uh, certainly been slow and boring, as you say, 
Uh, and uh, if you were writing predictions as one is wont to do at the start of last year or this year, uh, probably you could spend your time just as easily shopping online to greater benefit because uh, there is so much in what you just said that defied prediction if you tried to do it in August or September or November. And even those of us, I think you and I have talked about this before, Kevin, but even those of us who, who did forecast, uh, you know, sort of a, some of these things, not in totality, but a contested election or sort of a, a, a decline in, in bipartisanship or whatever the case might be, probably wouldn't have been able to foresee them in these terms. But nonetheless, we'll proceed. One of the things I want to talk about first, uh, leaving some of the more dramatic political events that we're living through right now, is the outcome of the Senate election, because so much of our conversation last time was predicated on a split Congress uh, and, uh, and a Democratic White House. What does the 50-50 split uh, of the Senate and de- uh, Democratic control of Congress mean for the Biden administration and their agenda? Well, you know, if you go back six months, there was expectation for a blue wave. If you go back two months, there was this sort of consensus view, although I think we were we were hedging and still saw some room for the, the outcome we got, uh, but there was this consensus view that there'd be a Republican majority, and now there is the thinnest of Democrat majorities in the Senate. And Senate uh, minority leader now, but soon to be majority leader Chuck Schumer, is going to have plenty of work cut out for him because of it. Now, he's gotten a couple of advantages from this, this turn of events. The first is that he's majority leader and controls the agenda, and Democrats will control the agendas of their committees. That will make possible the confirmations of Biden's cabinet, uh, assuming all Democrats can support the nominees. Uh, And it also opens up the the opportunity to bring legislation that uh, if McConnell, uh, Mitch McConnell from Kentucky, were still majority leader in the coming in in the current Congress after Biden's inauguration, that he, he probably would have stalled. So some of those opportunities or parliamentary arcana, like the tax reconciliation process that allows the passage of revenue measures uh, with essentially a simple majority, 51 of 100 senators. And some of them are are just the the scope and scale of things that might have had bipartisan backing even in a Republican Senate, like the, the green stimulus we talked so much about last time. So this makes that green stimulus probably bigger uh, although still subject to the constraints uh, that, that come from, from needing Republicans. If you still have, as, as it looks like Schumer will have, a legislative filibuster intact, at least for now, and we can talk about that in a second, uh, it looks like he'll still need 10 Republican colleagues to come on board to spend money. Now, that's good news because uh, elected officials like to spend money in their home states. It's bad news because the Republicans that are running for re-election are going to be leery of spending money in a way that their would-be challengers in primary contests uh, could bill as a Green New Deal. They'll be leery of, of being accused of supporting a Green New Deal, even if it's sort of a medium-sized green stimulus. But do you think that, that Schumer can draw 10 Republicans to spend money on things that Republicans have home state industries that could, could benefit from? Sure. Uh, that seems eminently possible. So uh, a slightly bigger green stimulus, if not much more so, and, uh, you know, the, the limits are, are political in this case rather than procedural. There, there's also probably a pretty good possibility that uh, Schumer will be in a position to separate the, the stimulus itself 
from tax hikes, which Biden campaigned on. And doing so is, is probably going to be essential to drawing Republican support in the first instance, uh, but also probably good policy anyway, because the one-time emergency spending is really a separate category of thing, policy-wise, from sort of the ongoing structure of the permanent code. So look, the, those, are the, those are really big things. Moving nominees, controlling the agenda, a bigger green stimulus, and a bid at tax reconciliation for tax hikes later, uh, probably not immediately in, in the Biden term. And you mentioned that, you know, there's going to be concern from Republican members of Congress about deficits, obviously, and stimulus and deficits was one of the constraints that we saw emerge again in the stabilization stimulus that passed right before the end of the year. How much is that going to be a real constraint for what the Biden administration wants to do on stimulus? I mean, are there dollar thresholds that are, you know, well appreciated in this conversation? Or is it really a, a more of a like a theoretical kind of concern over certain types of spending, you know, like on roads and bridges and other things versus other kinds of spending? Like, what what's the nature of that concern? How is that going to manifest? Sunday morning TV is usually the limiting factor. I mean, Republicans uh, have have trouble responding to hosts who ask them, if they can support trillion dollar packages, you know, saying trillion on Sunday just doesn't work for a lot of these folks. And so uh, it's conceptual, probably more than it is uh, sort of an economically or physically limited uh, constraint, because uh, in the end, there are going to be Republicans. There, there are at least 10 senators with very significant automotive industries uh, in the Republican Party that they have in their home states that could benefit from things like the Clean Cars for America Act that Schumer proposed in October 2019, which, again, in its original incarnation is hundreds of billions of dollars for credits across the entire value chain, which seems really pretty unlikely in the context of this thin blue Senate. But, you know, even uh, even a fraction of that is going to be welcomed by some of those those senators. There's other senators who represent significant renewable resource bases. Uh, And for them, uh, you know, a one year extension of the wind credit is nice, but five is better. Uh, Still others have legacy nuclear power plants in their state. Uh, And uh, the idea of preserving those plants and the jobs that come with them, the tax base that they create, uh, that could be appealing. So uh, it's possible to see a package that could be cobbled together that pulls 10 Republicans on board up to a point. Uh, If you start to talk about sort of the HEROES Act uh, and the the two uh, or originally $3.2 trillion price tag that came with it, that seems like a sticking point. If there were a high watermark to have been struck, it would be the $2.2 trillion CARES Act uh, that passed in March. And by all appearances, Biden seems very careful. He's trying to stay beneath the CARES threshold. Uh, and I think that doesn't make Republicans carefree exactly when it comes to spending, but it might make them uh, more willing to consider it. We're going to start counting your puns in these podcasts there, Kevin. <laughs> Okay, so what you just described, it sounds to me very similar to what we would have said back in November in terms of, you know, what Republicans uh, would or would not be able to come over for in a closely divided Congress. But we've had a pretty significant political event in this country in the interim period of time, which was, you know, the, the events that took place on January 6th and the fallout that's resulted in the, the impeachment of, of Donald Trump. Looks like there will not be a Senate hearing on said impeachment until the Biden administration takes over. 
what do the events of that day and the political fallout that's transpiring mean for the agenda for Biden in Congress? Lots of speculation that, you know, proceeding with an impeachment trial at the same time that you would try to pass this very large stimulus package and get all of your people confirmed would be counterproductive and is too much for them to bear. But also, you know, a lot of questions about whether or not what a lot of us presupposed going into next year that, you know, Republicans, particularly in the Senate, led by Mitch McConnell, would try and not uh, play ball with the incoming Biden administration in as many ways as possible. Maybe that's not true anymore. So are, are there new fissures within the Republican Party that make the potential for Republicans to work with an incoming Biden administration just fundamentally different than they were before the events of the last couple of weeks? So I guess what you're asking on the surface is, did January 6th change everything? And uh, the answer is that January 6th changed a lot of things, uh, at least for a little while, but some things never change. And in, in many ways, the reaction to the January 6th events may be producing even more partisanship in the end. The immediate response of lawmakers was to find new committee and to say, look, let's agree. The American people are expecting this of us. We have to be seen cooperating. We have to set an example of cooperation. Let's do it. Uh, by Friday of uh, that week, and that was a Wednesday, uh, I guess in early into the hours of, of Thursday, the president-elect was in the position of having to ask Congress not to proceed with impeachment, which would have been difficult to do, because it was going to get in the way of his, of his own agenda. Uh, and uh, the Republicans who had who'd been willing to say, look, this is too much, were starting to, to bristle, and maybe rightly so. You know, the, the argument the Republicans put forward was that this is a partisan gambit. Well, impeachment is always a partisan event. And arguably, the one that took place uh, the second impeachment of Donald Trump's term was the least partisan to ever occur with, with 10 House Republicans endorsing it, including, including Liz Cheney, the number three Republican in the caucus. But it is still quite partisan. And the partisan aspect of this is, again, I hate jumping into the politics minutia, but I think it's important to appreciate where Republicans' uh, frustration may come from. A lot of them said, look, Trump is leaving anyway. This is divisive. Don't do it. And some of them said, you're going to put us on the record at some point voting either for or against Trump. And that's not going to help us as a party. So don't do it. That feeling probably getting rekindled, whether it happens, you know, shortly after January 20th or as House Majority Whip Clyburn has suggested, 100 days into the Biden term, that's not going to help things. And, you know, if you go back to June, we, we said that the election was likely to be you know, early, divisive, and contested. And sure enough, all those things happened. But what did that mean for energy? And what it meant is that already you've had this, this growing partisan ideological linkage. Instead of members thinking only about their resources base or first to, about their resources, they're thinking now about their national party as a tool to getting reelected in this highly charged environment. And it means that the ideology of energy is bifurcating tremendously. You have Democrats becoming ever more the party of transition and green energy and Republicans becoming ever more the champions of fossil fuels. And that doesn't make compromise easier. And so anything that exacerbates that sense of division makes the compromises on energy that would that could potentially happen in the Congress even harder. And so as hopeful as one might have been that there are areas of consensus that were awakened by a recognition that our republic is fragile and needs defenders, 
politics is an ongoing sport. The season never stops, never gets old, and very few people play it better than Nancy Pelosi. She knows she's got a, a pretty powerful move she's played here, uh, and she's going to play it. She's played it already. Uh, and the, the aftershocks from that probably point towards more division. Well, it's certainly an interesting moment to assess what the future of the parties will be. I, I will have to keep an eye on this as we keep talking over the course of the year. I, I think what you said approximates how the House looks, right? I mean, it is quite a startling outcome to have the events of what happened uh, last week uh, and, and still have a huge number of Republicans in the House support support the president and, and not impeach him. And um, for, for a variety of different reasons, but it does show the durability of our, of our divisiveness, our divided uh, nature in our politics. The, the question that I have is really on the Senate side, right, where you do wonder whether or not there are a, a few senators who are not, you know, opposed to um, the more moderate version of the energy transition and, and may want to be able to you know, move forward on agenda items that they see as being in their interest or their state's interest over a period of time. And I wonder if, you know, a, a very astute Biden administration would be able to sort of cleave off some of that support from the Republican Party to be able to advance different objectives. But but it leads me to like my next question, which is what would those be, right? So you've got an energy bill that just passed and a lot of you know Republican representatives of Congress thinking, well, we just did the thing, right? We did the energy bill. There was a lot of innovation in there. There was a lot of you know things that that we had supported and wanted to get done for a long time. What more would they want to do? Can you talk to us about where that you know energy legislation that passed uh, at the end of the year leaves us? What's still left on the table to do to finalize that? And are there other big things that should be part of? a congressional agenda going forward beyond what was in there. Yeah, I mean, let me first position the, the sort of the, the, the process aspects that I think you referenced in the question. On November 9th, Joe Manchin, who's going to be the chairman of the Energy and Natural Resources Committee from the, the very fossil fuel producing state of West Virginia and very much a centrist, went on Fox News to declare his, his opposition to abolishing the legislative filibuster. Uh, that looked like a red line as much as uh, an opinion. Essentially, Manchin was saying, look, I, I'm only going so far. Uh, in the months that followed, uh, you've heard from Lisa Murkowski from Alaska, who, while being up for re-election, uh, has demonstrated her ability to, to get re-elected without support from the Republican Party. She did so in 2010. She's suggested that she's willing to reach across the aisle. And Susan Collins had made similar comments before and after the election. Mitt Romney has recently uh, his opinion polling among Democrats is twice what it is among Republicans, and the two scores are diverging with Democrats to the upside, Republicans to the downside. So two more dates. On January 8th, in the remarks Biden made at the end of the, the very tumultuous week, he recognized all the Republicans uh, out there that he'd been hearing from. That seemed very deliberate. It was essentially a signal like, hey, guys, I'm ready to work with you. And on, on January 12th, uh, Schumer wrote a, a Dear Colleague letter in which he, he described working on investment, investment. Uh, and the word investment is not the word taxation. It's not, certainly not carbon taxation. Uh, it's certainly not the word reconciliation. Uh, it's a, it, it was a call to find common ground on spending and uh, really ahead of the stimulus package, I think. So when you ask, what is there left to do? Haven't we just spent all this money in the tax extenders package at the end of last year? 
The answer is, well, it depends on who you ask and why. The $35 billion in notional innovation spending, including a, a direct air capture prize, you know, a very big change, one, one I will highlight in a moment uh, in a way that you may disagree with, uh, but uh, that'll make for a lively conversation. That isn't paid for yet. That's $7 billion a year over five years that needs to be appropriated. If you look at the the year-on-year spending and the appropriations bill that passed versus the fiscal 2020 actuals, there's a delta of $30 million, not $7 billion. That money's still got to come out of Congress, so there's room to agree on spending $7 billion on innovation far and wide, including nuclear energy, including CCS, but also including a lot of renewables and battery storage. Uh, So very significant outlays still yet to come. And in terms of the extensions, the extension for one year on wind could have been five if you'd taken the template of the July House Passed Moving Forward Act, which was their transportation bill. Again, it was a transportation bill, not a climate bill. Now, you could have read it and said, this is a climate bill by any other name. But that's kind of the point of this. Give Republicans an opportunity to say yes on infrastructure or transportation or investment, and you might find some takers. Tell them that they've got to say yes on climate, and I think you're going to see a lot of blank faces. So uh, in addition, there were provisions like taking the investment tax credit or production tax credit as a cash grant, right? Something that came up during the Recovery Act in 2009 and had since phased out. Uh, There were incremental outlays uh, to create new credits for storage. Uh, There were opportunities to to add to the electric vehicle manufacturing and and sales credits uh, that, again, some of which Schumer had envisioned himself. So all these things are still out there. There's there's triple-digit billions to trillions of dollars of domain space. It's not going to get spent, obviously, in this stimulus package. But if you got high double-digit billions or low triple-digit billions, uh, it would mark an order of magnitude over what happened at the end of last year. Yeah, it's, I mean, certainly a pleasant and, and somewhat unexpected contribution to the innovation agenda for the Biden administration. I agree there's a lot that folks would like to see that wasn't included that could be included, you know, in some other round. But your your point on couching all of these things, both the stimulus and the provisions within within the energy bill as investments, right? Investments to growth seems definitely to be where, where the consensus opportunity is. Um, I wanted to turn to something else really quickly, which is what the the Trump administration has been doing in the waning hours of the administration getting ready to depart. There's a lot of uh, news articles about uh, 11th hour actions that are meant to trip up the Biden administration coming in or things that the administration promised to do, but uh, but had not quite gotten to, you know, on the day uh, of the Capitol insurrection, there was uh, an Anwar lease sale, which, you know, otherwise would have gotten lots of attention, but was certainly overcome by uh, the day's events. There's smaller things like, you know, changes to protections for like migratory birds and, you know, other things here and there. And also the strengthening of the transparency in pivotal regulations uh, proposal uh, coming out of the EPA. But then also surprises like a final rule posting uh, that appeared uh, yesterday arguing that industrial sources of emissions shouldn't qualify as significant sources of greenhouse gas emissions unless they meet some 3% of U.S. carbon emissions threshold, which effectively takes you know most things off the table other than the electric power sector for stationary emissions regulation, uh, which maybe seemed to come out of nowhere. So 
what are the, the things that the incoming Biden administration is going to have trouble with that the Trump administration might be doing in the 11th hour? Or, or is all of this stuff just kind of not super consequential, but more pesky? Well, Sarah, there's a lot of articles out talking about how vacant so many agencies are right now and the void in expertise that's needed to protect our national security during a tumultuous time. But I would note that two agencies aren't vacant at the top. The EPA, uh, which has Andy Wheeler, who's an experienced veteran, who really knows what he's doing, uh, and, uh, and also Dave Bernhardt, who I would put in the same category running the Interior Department. And uh, both of them are in the, in the role of trying to finalize what are commonly referred to as midnight rules, because they happen at the end of an administration. Uh, a lot of them seem to be pouring out because really the administration, I think, probably thought they had two terms coming. Uh, and so there's a lot of business that, you know, it would have been it would have been politically challenging to do any of this stuff before an election. Uh, and so they didn't want to do it before the election because they wanted to win that election. But they didn't do it because they expected to win the election. Uh, and so now they're doing it in a hurry. Uh, some of what's going on is relatively surprising in the way it, it, it's shown up on, on the radar screen without any warning. Everybody knew that the Office uh, of Management and Budget was reviewing a Section 111B rule for the power plant uh, regulation under the Clean Air Act of greenhouse gases. Nobody, I think, anticipated that what EPA was planning to do was to finalize part of that original proposal as a continuation of an assertion that EPA had made in the methane regulations uh, when they finalized the rollback in August, which was that you need a pollutant-specific, source category-specific finding of endangerment, basically, a significant cause or contribute finding, something abbreviated comfortably as an SCF, um, not a SCIF like the security people know it, just an SCF. Uh, and uh, the idea that the, the rule that was supposed to be about power plants could be used for this. This is a little bit like when Congress passes a national security law and they use a bill that was already created, like the, the Basket Weaving Appreciation Act of 2021, ends up deploying forces to the Middle East uh, because that bill was already in progress. Wheeler's basically done the same thing here. He's, he's continued what he promised to do in the methane rule inside of the shell of the 111B power plant rule with the possibility that he also finishes the power plant rule still. I mean, you can't, can't rule anything out. But look, none of this stuff is as durable as it looks if it isn't published in the Federal Register. And even if it is published in the Federal Register, it's subject to an administrative freeze uh, by the incoming administration, which we do expect. Uh, a lot of the rules that have come out, the ones that have gone final, been published and already received legal challenge, provide a fast track to roll back, which is that the incoming administration can petition for remand and take them back to the agencies. The courts usually accommodate that. In some cases, agencies don't even know what to do because they know stuff's about to turn over. So the venting and flaring rule that uh, has been beaten in court uh, and uh, it now sits in front of the Bureau of Land Management, the BLM has been forced to say, well, you know, we'll just have to see what the next folks want to do about this to the court. Uh, so a lot of this stuff isn't nearly as durable as it looks. Even some of the really durable things uh, have the effect of, of lingering uh, only until they're overwritten by a de novo rulemaking uh, that, yes, takes anywhere from 12 to 18 months, plus defensive legal challenges. But by gum, as my great-grandfather would have said, the incoming administration is well-positioned because they've been planning on this. They were always planning on an executive branch agenda. And the Thin blue Senate is just gravy, bonus to the upside. 
so this is really uh, something that they were muscling up for. And so in the end, a lot of these things aren't necessarily going to change very much. What they are going to do is occupy bandwidth. And the outgoing Trump administration has figured out ways to make these rules more annoying and more persistent than they might otherwise be. One of them is to cite a, a just cause provision in the Administrative Procedure Act that puts the rule into effect immediately rather than 30 days after publication, preventing the administrative freeze, forcing something like litigation or petition for reconsideration uh, or an eventual remand in a court case. But most of this stuff is, is going to be valid in the sense that it, it puts ink on the administrative record and there's going to be bigger fights in the future about some of these things. The ink's going to matter, but it's probably not going to bind in, in the way that rules that were finalized long ago could. It's nice to know that there are still some traditions in Washington of trying to hamstring the incoming administration as much as you can. <laughs> well, look, you know, the, the, the incoming uh, Bush administration uh, learned that their keyboards that all have the W key removed. The outgoing Clinton administration frustrated that in their belief that, that Bush had stolen Florida, stole W. You know, this is a, this is a little bit in the same flavor as that. Uh, maybe not quite as fraternity prankish. Uh, but there's always a little bit of something waiting when you come in. And uh, this is a team of veterans who know what they're getting. So we've talked a lot about the Biden administration, the Biden administration, the Biden administration, what they're going to do, their agenda. We also know a lot more about who those people actually are uh, than the last time we talked. There have been a number of people announced uh, as part of the Biden administration, most notably, you know, uh, Secretary Kerry having a role, an actual seat on the National Security Council to be an international envoy for climate. We've got Gina McCarthy in the White House uh, as a coordinator of domestic climate uh, policy, Jennifer Granholm at uh, Department of Energy. Most surprising to me, quite frankly, Brian Deese, who many of us know being the energy and climate uh, coordinator, taking over the NEC and, you know, experts like Ali Zaidi. We've heard lots of different names uh, coming through about where different people will be. I was just wondering your thoughts on the makeup of this team and what it might mean or what it signals to you about what the Biden administration in terms of its climate priorities I think it tells, uh, tells us an awful lot. Uh, and it's, it's interesting now that we have the context of knowing the personnel, as they say, who are policy. We thought about it in, in three different dimensions. One of them is, are they Obama alumni? You know, are these people who, who know how to, to run the show uh, with recent experience in doing so? Uh, the, the president-elect wants to hit the ground running. Prerequisite to that would be having people who, who are still in shape. Uh, the one caveat to that, of course, is that the world's different. And Washington's different and coming in with preconceived expectations of how things used to work may not be as much of an advantage as it would have been. Second, uh, second consideration uh, is a little bit uh, artificial, but I think it helps to sort of separate the, the who and the where into a why. Uh, and uh, it's a division we would make between uh, domain expert technicians, we'll call them, uh, and elected officials that, you know, call them politicians because they are. And the technicians know how to actually do things at, at an operational level, but more importantly, how to strategize across the suite of operations into a, a real comprehensive program. Whereas the politicians have expertise as familiar faces uh, in, in evangelizing things to Democratic Party constituencies that they may not so much like. So let me, let me give you some examples. You, you mentioned the White House Green Brain Trust. 
right? Gina McCarthy, Ali Zaidi, uh, Brian Deese, Nira Tendon, uh, Brenda Mallory. These, these are folks that are all very much in the technician category. Uh, you know, if you look at them ideologically, they're all pretty far into the green space also. And so there's no question about what they're there to do or that they know how to do it. Uh, they, are, uh, they are technicians par excellence, and they are the ones that are probably going to be writing the, the, the sort of the, the fundamental strategy that the agencies will be executing on their behalf. Now, some of those agencies have to do things that are, are part uh, technical, but also part political. So when you look at, uh, when you look at Pete Buttigieg and uh, Jennifer Granholm, uh, the secretary designates of transportation and energy, respectively, you can think of them as ambassadors to car country, right? In some ways, some of what the Biden administration is going to be doing EV-wise, electric vehicle-wise, may be a bitter pill for them to swallow in, in South Bend and in Detroit. And so who better than the people who, who know how to represent uh, to take those messages? The same thing could be said of Gina Raimondo uh, bringing offshore wind to skeptical coastal communities. Uh, and it, it doesn't stop there. Deb Haaland has to take the bitter medicine of a federal leasing ban to the most prolific federal oil and gas producing state, her home state of New Mexico. And you can think of John Kerry as essentially trying to, I mean, his real mission, politically speaking, is to take back the reins of climate policy from the Europeans without making them hate us any more than they already do, although they would never be so impolite as to say so overtly. Uh, so the, the technician in the agencies that we didn't talk about was Michael Regan, who's actually got a core expertise that's key for what this administration needs to do, which is to engage with states while prosecuting federal climate policy. So the, the choice of somebody who came, yes, as a technician and former EPA staffer, but more importantly, as a state environmental administrator, someone like Gina McCarthy with the domain understanding of what it takes to get things done inside of the 10th Amendment uh, cooperative federalism framework, that's such a big deal. That's, again, likely to be a success factor. Last thing, okay, so that was a long one. Last thing is just how green they are, right? And uh, if you look across the spectrum, if, if you think of, of Joe Manchin as a true centrist, you know, you've got a lot of fossil skeptical, transition forward, green pragmatists in this bunch. Probably one of the most centrist of the number is a technician and a politician, Janet Yellen, uh, who's going to be in the position of, of financializing climate risk, both directly and indirectly, probably, but also evangelizing that very technical construct of, of the idea of climate risk and, and pulling it in. Gary Gensler at SEC, right, brought in uh, essentially at, at a time when the Obama administration was skeptical of commodity traders to take them on, uh, now in a position essentially to, to make climate disclosure uh, the law of the land. These are Again, they're, they're, they're sort of technicians, uh, you know, their greenness, some of them are, are slightly less green, but nobody, nobody's even in the Manchin camp. Nobody's in the Ernie Moniz camp of all of the above. Uh, so you've got a unified ideology, a mixed skill set, and you can see what this is going to be able uh, to do if it works out. Uh, if it works out, they'll be able to set strategy and execute in parallel. They'll be able to phase both the legislative agenda and the regulatory targets. They'll be able to, to work across the government in, in sequence and in parallel, uh, and they'll be able to do it in lockstep. What could go wrong? Well, the only problem is having an A team of A students uh, who are sort of type A. Uh, and uh, those three A's could end up uh, not looking so good on the final report card, because uh, when you have nothing but a stable of racehorses, you're a gambler. Uh, you need some plow ponies 
uh, and mules to pull stuff too. Uh, I can anticipate, like the Obama administration, there's going to be a lot of strong opinions uh, and it's going to be part of the presidential mandate to keep everybody on side. First off, that is one of the most colorful and uh, neatly organized descriptions of the incoming Biden administration I've heard. So congratulations. I think that that's uh, that is really well done. I, I will say, in a, maybe you, you'll agree, you know, usually when we're looking at an incoming team, we can kind of figure out, you know, who the energy and climate people are, either by domain and jurisdiction and, and what they're doing, but also in terms of their background. I am struggling to find members of this cabinet and, and some of the high level appointees that we've heard that don't have experience in climate. And I don't think I've ever seen that before. It is probably the most pronounced interpretation of an all of government climate agenda that I could imagine. And I, I've just been personally, you know, uh, as an analyst, sort of shocked to see how you can't just sort of tick the box and say, okay, those are the climate people because they're everywhere. They are everywhere. And again, that's, that's both good and bad. Uh, not only are they all climate people, they're all pretty unified in where they stand on it and how they want to do it. Uh, but in every government, there's a challenge. Jurisdiction you know, the only things that matter in Washington are generally votes and money until you get into the question of, of jurisdiction. And jurisdiction is what happens after you get through the votes and the money and you get elected and you figure out who's really in charge here. Um, and uh, that uh, that's going to be problematic because our laws were not written neatly or comprehensively. They were written very parochially by committees on, on the Hill that were also clinging to their own jurisdictions and defending them and, and working in ways that when they, they produced final statutes... They, they created authorities that didn't lend themselves to cooperation, but actually to some degree of conflict. So again, this is a presidential mandate to manage, uh, but you're absolutely right, Sarah, and, and very right to point it out. If you told me that there was a litmus test, you can't be in the Biden administration unless you're a climate person, I'd believe you. I don't think that's true, uh, I, I, but it sure looks like that could have been the case. Kevin, there's so much going on. I can't think of a better person to have on to the Energy 360 podcast with us than you. You guys at Clearview track all of this stuff so meticulously. We benefit from your insights all the time. I hope we can do this often in 2021 because for all of the holiday uh, toasting goodbyes to 2020, it looks like uh, this year is trying to give it a run for its money. So uh, hopefully you'll come back and do this again soon. But thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's terrific to join you. Uh, Happy New Year, and let's look forward to a very interesting year, but hopefully in a positive way. Thanks to Kevin for joining Energy 360 this week. You can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find us at CSIS.org or follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. Thanks for listening. 